Good evening everybody and I'd like to welcome you to episode episode number four of Lighting a Candle for Democracy Australian Federal Politics from 1967 to 1977 The Whitlam Years The title of this episode is A Threat to the Coalition I'd like to firstly acknowledge the Ngunnawal people who are the traditional custodians of the Canberra region land on, one, on which much of this podcast is based. I pay respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal Nation, both past and present, and extend this respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islands, Islander peoples listening to this podcast today. On our last episode, we left it, we left it at the point in, on December 17, 1967 when the Prime Minister Harold Holt had disappeared into the sea off coastal Victoria in Australia. Just to recap, 1967 had been a difficult year for Harold Holt and his government. The coalition government, ruled by the Liberal Party and the Country Party, had been in power for 18 years, but the government had begun to disintegrate. Divisions began to show in the coalition part with, with, between both coalition partners, with the Country Party leader John McEwen and the Liberal Party deputy leader Billy McMahon engaged in a blood feud. This podcast will describe the events of the following critical 23 days that would occur after this tragic event that would result in the election of a new Prime Minister on Tuesday, 9 January 1968. The decision to decide on Harold Holt would, on the replacement of Harold Holt as Prime Minister would end up being a long one. There would be 12 people who would play a critical role in the decision. Firstly, William Daniel McMahon, Deputy Leader of the Liberal Party and Treasurer. Secondly, John McEwen, Leader of the Country Party. John Gray Gorton, Liberal Leader in the Senate and the Education Minister. Paul, Mina, Cadewella, Hasluck, External Affairs Minister. John, Malcolm Fraser, Minister for the Army. George, Dudley, Irwin, Chief Government Whip. Malcolm, Fox, Scott, Chief Government Whip in the Senate. Ainsley Gotto, Secretary to Dudley Irwin and, and a Chief Advisor. Maxwell Newton, Media Owner and Journalist. Sir Robert Gordon Menzies former Prime Minister of Australia and the founder of the Liberal Party. Edward Gough Whitlam, leader of the Federal Parliamentary Labor Party and the, and the official opposition. And finally, Baron Richard Gavin Gardner Casey, the Governor-General of Australia. There will be numerous theories about Holt's disappearance of the sea that day. I'll not go into too much detail on this, but what we do know is that when Holt went into the sea that morning, he would enter in what were very rough waters, even by the standards of Cheviot Beach and that part of the Victorian coastline. He had gone down to the beach that morning with a group of friends. When he entered the water, he would be enveloped by this strong undertow and dragged out to sea. Marjorie Gillespie who was one of Holt's friends who would be with him that day, would say that, I quote, it was like a leaf being taken out. It was so quick, 
and so final, end quote. By 2.30pm that afternoon, the search for Holt was being done by the Victorian Police and the Royal Australian Navy, with helicopters and divers joining in the search for the nation's Prime Minister. Later on that afternoon, Zara Holt, the wife of the Prime Minister, would be informed of her husband's disappearance. Zara was still in Canberra at the time, and would fly down to Melbourne and then on to Portsea. It must have been a surreal day that afternoon in Portsea and the Mornington Peninsula with the Prime Minister's wife hoping to find her missing husband. The search for Holt was a valiant one, but by the afternoon it was becoming more likely that the Prime Minister would not be found. In the meantime, the news of Holt's passing began to spread. It was a chaotic afternoon around the country as news reports filtered through of the Prime Minister's disappearance. It was at this point that the battle to decide who the new Prime Minister would be would actually begin in earnest. At first appearances it may appear to be disrespectful to even consider so soon the replacement of the well-loved ex-Prime Minister, but nature abhors a vacuum and Australia needed a Prime Minister. There will be two parts to this process. Firstly, an acting Prime Minister would have to be appointed by the Governor-General. This would allow time for a new leader of the Liberal Party to be elected by the Liberal Party room. The winner of this vote would become the new Prime Minister. As a side note, immediately after Holt's disappearance, his briefcase was seized by government authorities. This was obviously to ensure that no government secrets would be revealed. There were two letters in Holt's bag both relating to the file records of the discussions between Casey, the Governor-General, and Billy McMahon on the 8th of December 1967. One record was Casey's version of the meeting, and the, others, the other would be McMahon's. Sensationally, the letter from Casey will be reproduced in Alan Reed's book, book, The Power Struggle. Casey would admit that the reproduction of the letter was actually reasonably accurate. The KC record would provide a vivid account of a government in a leadership vacuum with the Governor-General berating the Deputy Leader of the Majority Party in government for his relationship with Maxwell Newton, who was on the surface a relatively minor player in the Canberra Press Gallery, owning a number of political newsletters. The Governor-General in theory had a difficult decision to make as to who would be the new... Who, as to who would be the acting Prime Minister until the Liberal Party elected its new leader. A Prime Minister had only passed away in office twice before. In 1945, John Curtin would pass away while Prime Minister, but he led the Australian Labor Party, who ruled in their own right. The Deputy Leader at the time, Frank Ford, was acting Prime Minister for eight days, while the Federal Parliamentary Labor Party elected its new leader which would end up being Ben Chifley. Chifley would then take over as Prime Minister. This was a fairly simple process. But Casey would have to go back further to 1939, when the Prime Minister at the time, Joseph Lyons, was in a coalition government again with the Country Party. Lyons would die suddenly without, making, without naming a successor. The leader of the Country Party, who at the time was the legendary Doc Earl Page, 
Page would eventually take over the role as prime as as acting prime minister. This was despite the fact that Page led the country party, which was a smaller a smaller party in the partnership with the United Australia Party. The reason for this was that Lyons had not nominated nom, nominated a successor to take over from him. But there was a big difference to the current situation that the Governor General was facing in 1967. The United Australia Party did not have a deputy leader, so there was no line of succession. But there was a key difference this time. Why? The majority party, the Liberal Party, had a deputy leader in Billy McMahon. So McMahon had a strong case to be appointed as acting Prime Minister. But Casey had already made his decision on the afternoon of Holt's disappearance. The Governor-General phoned the Attorney-General, Nigel Bowen, and the Chief Justice of the High Court, Garfield Barwick. The purpose of the phone call was to seek their opinions on Casey's decision to swear in John McEwen as Prime Minister until the Liberal Party met to choose their new leader. The Attorney-General and Chief Justice would concur with the Governor-General's decision. John McEwen would be sworn in in two days' time and would be acting Prime Minister until the Liberal Party elected its new leader. There are arguments both ways of whether McEwen or McMahon should have been sworn in as caretaker Prime Minister or also another way to put it as the Governor-General's Chief Advisor. The chief argument for McMahon was that unlike 1939, the Liberal Party had a legitimate successor in its deputy leader, McMahon. The argument against this was that the country party would vote with the Labour Party and no confidence motion if McMahon was Prime Minister in any, in, any in any capacity. We can go through this in more detail in, an, in, a, in a future digression episode, but let us to say the appointment of McEwen as acting Prime Minister, even for a Prime Minister, even for a short time, would be an important one. As acting Prime Minister, the country party leader would be exercising his powers as Prime Minister while leader of the country party, the minority party in the coalition government. It would deny McMahon the opportunity to prove himself as Prime Minister, even if this was in, in, an, in an acting role. In the meantime, Billy McMahon was in, was in Sydney on the day of Holt's disappearance, on the afternoon of Holt's disappearance, and he would receive a phone call from Peter Howson the Minister for the Air Force, with the incredible news. After receiving the news of Holt's disappearance, McMahon wanted to immediately charter a VIP flight at the taxpayer's, at the taxpayer's expense and fly, from Canberra, and fly to Canberra from Sydney. McMahon had acted hastily, not thinking of the possible consequences that would flow on from media exposure on a topic that had already damaged the government's reputation only months previously. Peter Kelly, as McMahon's press secretary, knew how the press gallery would rip, would rip McMahon apart for what appeared to be cold-blooded, with Holt still not confirmed to be dead. However, it is possible with the advantage of hindsight, despite all of this, to suggest that McMahon should have followed his instincts and travelled immediately to Canberra. Time was of the essence, with John McEwen moving quickly to prevent, to prevent Billy McMahon from becoming the new Prime Minister in any capacity. McEwen would not hesitate. He had learned about Holt's disappearance that afternoon. 
and was on his way to Canberra. Johnny McEwen, as part of his gang of four, would be his country party lieutenants, Doug Anthony, Ian Sinclair and Peter Nixon. McEwen and Anthony would meet together and agree that the country party could not serve under McMahon as Prime Minister. The discussion would then move on to their preferred candidates for the Liberal Party leadership. Out of Paul Huslack and John Gorton, McEwen would agree with his deputy, Anthony, that Gorton would be the country party's preferred candidate. On, su on Sunday evening, December 17, 1967, with a country party position established, McEwen would visit the country would visit the Governor General, Baron Casey, at his residency at Yarralumla at Government House, Canberra. Casey had been a senior member of the Liberal Party and been, had been heavily involved with the Conservative establishment in Australia over the last half century. He had been appointed as Governor General by his old rival, former Prime Minister Sir Robert Menzies. The meeting between Casey and McEwen was an informal one. Both men had served together in government and knew each other well over a number of years. Casey and McEwen had not been close friends either politically or personally, but they shared a personal dislike of McMahon. The purpose of John McEwen's visit was to convince Casey to appoint him as caretaker Prime Minister while the Liberal Party elected a new leader. McEwen's unpublished biography was illuminating and an insight into the political warrior's political nous and his unc uncanny re reading of people. And I quote, Holt's disappearance posed some problems for Casey. He had to decide almost immediately when to commission the new Prime Minister, for he could scarcely wait until the, until the Liberal Party had got around to electing a new leader. I appreciated Casey's difficulty. If it turns out that Harold Holt had has drowned, I said, you have to have a Prime Minister. I think if you were to make one of the contenders within the Liberal Party Prime Minister, even on a temporary basis, then you would give whoever you chose an absolutely unfair advantage in the leadership of election. I would advise you to make me Prime Minister until the Liberal Party has made its own decision in the leadership. If you do that, I will step aside and make way for their man." Unquote. In addition to this, McEwen would let Casey know that neither he nor his country party would not would serve would not serve in a would serve would not serve in a coalition government led by Billy McMahon. It was a brazen act by the country party leader to prevent his arch nemesis from being elected as the new leader of the Liberal Party. McEwen knew quite well that Casey placed a high value on the status of the coalition government. The consideration of fairness in the upcoming leadership battle should not have been a consideration on the government on the Governor General's decision as to who would be the caretaker Prime Minister. But Casey had already indicated a, willing, a willingness to interfere in the political fray if it ensured the stability of the coalition government. McEwen would make the most of his opportunity to be the first senior minister to visit the Governor General after Holt's disappearance. He had quickly moved quickly to head off any possibility of McMahon convincing Casey to appoint him as caretaker Prime Minister. It is now clear McEwen was the only senior minister 
who had a close relationship with the Governor-General. In the meantime, there were only two Liberal Party ministers present in Canberra on that fateful Sunday of December 17, John Gorton and Paul Hasluck. Gorton was relaxing at his home on the Sunday afternoon when he received a phone call, firstly from Ainsley Gotto, and then from Dudley Irwin, the, the government's chief whip. Irwin pointedly asked Gorton, and I quote, You know what this means to you, unquote. Irwin was essentially advising Gorton that while Holt's disappearance was a tragedy, that he should consider his next steps on what could be an inevitable battle for the leadership and the Prime Ministership of Australia. At this stage, Gorton was still the outsider in the leadership ballot that would actually end up replacing Holt. Another of Gorton's key supporters, Malcolm Fraser, had chartered an aircraft to get to Canberra, but Gorton and his team, particularly Irwin, sensed early on that the opportunity that Gorton now had. McMahon would also phone Gorton in the afternoon. McMahon wanted the Liberal Party MPs to meet as soon as possible to decide on a course of action. This would most likely involve a leadership ballot to replace Harold Holt. This was clearly in Billy McMahon's best interest because it would be likely that McMahon would be his deputy leader favourite to at least act as a new leader of the Liberal Party. But Gorton rejected this, wanting to allow for more time for search parties to continue their search for Harold Holt. With no acting leader for the Liberal Party, it was becoming more likely that John McEwen would be the caretaker Prime Minister. This would allow McEwen to thwart McMahon's efforts in being elected the new leader, and as a result, increase the chances for Gorton to succeed Holt. On that evening, on the 17th of December, Haslack and Gorton would attend a sombre dinner with the New Zealand High Commissioner. Both men would discuss who would replace Holt as Prime Minister. In their accounts, Haslack and Gorton agreed that they were the best qualified to be the new leader of the Liberal Party and the new Prime Minister. On his return home, Gorton would find that he actually had a late-night visitor. And guess what? It was Doug Anthony, the deputy leader of the country party. Anthony was there to encourage Gordon to run for the leadership as he was the preferred candidate from the country party's perspective. The next morning, Monday 18 December, would be a momentous day. The old Parliament House reflected the mood of the country, with the country still in shock over the disappearance of its Prime Minister. Alan Reid in his book, The Power Struggle, would explain it well, and I quote, Holt with, his, Holt with his cheery grin, his kindliness and his indomitable optimism and his lack of pretension was a well-loved man. His sudden death in such dramatic circumstances, alive one minute, and the next disappearing to the sea that he loved and which he made his playground as a skin diver, had momentarily a numbing effect. But the life of government went on, and events were moving quickly. The events the previous day had virtually confirmed that John McEwen would be sworn in the next day to become the acting Prime Minister, while the Liberal Party determined who would be the next leader of the Liberal Party. By the Monday morning, the 18th of December, most of the senior figures in the, in the government had arrived back in Canberra. McMahon wanted to call a meeting of the Parliamentary Liberal Party for the Wednesday to elect a new leader. 
To arrange this, McMahon would have to talk to the government whip, who in this case was Dudley Irwin. The whip is essentially the numbers person who ensures that the politicians are present in the House of Parliament when any voting on motions take place, and seeing that members vote as a bloc, ensuring they follow the party's policy. Irwin was now an important figure in the leadership wranglings that were taking place. On the afternoon of the 18th, a number of the senior members of the government, including all the contenders for the leadership of the Liberal Party, would visit the Governor-General at Government House in Canberra. There are a number of government ministers who would see Casey on the morning of Monday, after Monday, December 18, 1967. The first to see Casey was McEwen. John McEwen had already seen Lord Casey the afternoon before. In a more formal setting, McEwen confirmed that none of the serving country party MPs would serve under Billy McMahon as Prime Minister of Australia. He put the case that while Liberal Party MPs selected their new leader, Casey should appoint himself as caretaker Prime Minister in the interim. McEwen would stand aside when the Liberal Party leadership was decided. Paul Huslack was next to see Casey, and Huslack concurred and agreed with McEwen on the opinions of McMahon. Hazlitt stated he would also not serve under McMahon because he did not trust him. McEwen would also say the same thing and would repeat this to McMahon in person when he said, and I quote, Bill, I will not serve under you because I don't trust you. End quote. Casey would then discuss McEwen's contention that he would not serve under McMahon. Hazlitt would claim that Casey would say, and I quote, he did not want to be confronted with the dilemma that McMahon was the leader of the party and of knowing that McMahon was unlikely to be able to form a government. End quote. Alan Fairhall and John Gorton would also meet with Casey. Both stated their willingness to serve under McEwen as caretaker Prime Minister until the new Liberal leader was chosen. At this stage, Gorton was still at long odds to win the leadership, but the odds were starting to shorten. McMahon was the last to see Lord Casey. As acting leader, <clears throat> it was a humiliating meeting for McMahon. Casey told McMahon that he would be appointing McEwen as the new caretaker Prime Minister. Casey, after meeting with the other key players, had confirmed that neither McEwen nor Haslack would serve under him as Prime Minister. In, his, in addition to this, it was unlikely that McMahon would be able to hold a party meeting to decide the leadership before the new year. It had been a momentous and, con and controversial day. The leader of the minority party in the coalition was appointed Prime Minister, a bleat in a, as an acting one. But McEwen had almost ensured that McMahon would not be the new Prime Minister. And, but, but McEwen, or at least his office, would make sure of it by a leak to, to, to the Australian newspaper in the week after McEwen was sworn in. And I quote from the paper at the time. A spokesman for the Prime Minister McEwen, Mr McEwen, yesterday confirmed that the main cause of the rift between Mr McEwen and the Federal Treasurer, Mr McMahon, was the association between Mr McMahon and the Canberra economic journalist, Mr Maxwell Newton. End quote. The source of leak, the leak was McEwen's press secretary and would allege that Newton had been on overseas business trips with McMahon and that Newton was and I quote, a paid representative of an official Japanese export agency, end quote, in Australia. It is probable 
that McEwen would have been aware of the leak as it came from his own office. The fact that the story was sourced from the Prime Minister and not the caretaker or acting Prime Minister gave it even more credence. This would isolate McEwen even further, McMahon I should say, even further from his Liberal Party colleagues who were to vote on the leadership in less than three weeks. He would now have to change his focus from the leadership to just surviving as deputy leader. McMahon was now in trouble and in an isolated position within the Liberal Party. There were Liberals such as Paul Haslack who had a similar disdain to McMahon as McEwen did, which we've already spoken about. Alan Ramsey, who wrote for the Australian newspaper, would describe McMahon's predicament well, and I quote, Suddenly McMahon had become an outcast, avoided, if not shunned, by political colleagues he had known and with whom he, with whom he had worked for as long as 18 years. It was as if the plague had, had infected his office. It was as if the plague had infected his office. In the lobbies of Parliament, the feeling hung, hung heavy that it had to be seen with Mr. McMahon was to invite disaster too horrible to contemplate. End quote. Nobody crossed Blackjack. Yet despite these setbacks, McMahon was still put down as a contender for the leadership of the Liberal Party when the party would elect its new leader on 9 January 1968. The other, the other candidates would be John Gorton, Paul Haslack, Leslie Barry, and possibly Alan Fairhall and Billy Snedden. Even this early in the process, the veteran and savvy political journalist Ian Fitchett was picking John Gorton as the favourite. The question that has to be asked is, could McMahon have done anything else in this situation? In a sequel to McEwen's explosive announcement that he would not serve under McMahon as Prime Minister, McMahon would actually contact Casey on the 21st of December to propose that Casey organise a meeting with McEwen and McMahon to meet with the Governor-General present. Casey refused the question as he did not want to be seen as, and I quote, acting as an umpire between them, end quote. But McMahon could have still called McEwen's bluff and convened a Liberal Party meeting in the week after Holt's disappearance. He could not control McEwen or Casey but he could still influence Liberal Party opinions. If elected, McMahon would have forced Mr McEwen into making a tough decision. There was no better use of the user of the telephone than McMahon, as he had showed in 1966, when he was able to convince his party colleagues to elect him as deputy leader ahead of the more, more experienced, experienced opponent, Hasluck. Also, McMahon would have had a considerable amount of sympathy as a result of McEwen's pressure, McMahon's, McMahon's victory, if it occurred, would have forced McEwen to elaborate his reasons as to why he would not serve under him. McEwen had not been able to provide the irrefutable evidence to back up his claims. The accusation that McMahon could not be trusted could have been, even, could have been just as equally applied to, him, to himself with his domination of government policy on trade. Either McEwen would back down or break the coalition but this would have led to a double dissolution election or an unlikely, almost impossible coalition with the Labour Party. The increase in Liberal numbers over the country party after the 1966 election resulted in the Liberal Party being almost in a position to govern in their own right. McEwen's strategy depended on McMahon calling his bluff and his party colleagues deserting him. 
The second event depended on the first one occurring. If he had lost the leadership battle, McMahon had the option of going back to the back bench and biding his time. But this is all conjecture on my part. We'll never know because McMahon had bought McEwen's bluff and instead focused on his own political survival. The worst case result for McMahon was if Paul Haslack won the leadership battle. As we have seen, Haslack despised McMahon. It is therefore unlikely that McMahon would have survived as treasurer or even in the ministry if Haslack ended up becoming the new Liberal Party leader and the new Prime Minister. McMahon chose to take the safe option to survive. Politics, for, politics was McMahon's life, so his main priority began to, be, began to, became to keep his position as treasurer and deputy leader of the Liberal Party. McMahon and his supporters which would support John Gordon for the leadership in exchange for, in exchange for McMahon keeping his positions and offices in the, in the party. On Friday 22 December 1967, Harold Holt's memorial service would take place. It was a moving event attended by world leaders and senior politicians across the political divide. But with all the Liberal Party members of Parliament together, it would prove to be an opportunity for the candidates to sell themselves. Gorton would take full advantage of it. Billy Snedden, who was a contender, described Malcolm Fraser's, Malcolm Fraser's and John Gorton's behaviour as disgraceful for their campaigning for Gorton. Don Chip also described whispering discussions inside the church on who they would support as sickening. It would be a sombre end of the year on the Friday before Christmas, but life went on. There would be a number of contenders for the position who would have, of leadership over the coming days. The most obvious one was John McEwen, who was already acting Prime Minister. McEwen may, be, may have been the leader of the country party, but he also had, number, also had a number of supporters within the Liberal Party, his coalition partner. But this would have been a difficult proposition. McEwen would have probably been required to join the Liberal Party, or the Liberal Party room would vote for the new prime, or that the Liberal Party prime minister would not, Liberal Party would not put up their own candidate as a new leader, which is highly unlikely. So it was under these circumstances that the Liberal Party room would vote for the new prime minister on the 9th of January 1968. The candidates would finally, the final candidates would be Paul Haslack, Billy Snedden. Leslie Barry and John Gorton. Billy Snedden was young, ambitious, and wanted to stake his claim on future leadership battles. He was only 40, but had served as Attorney General and was a Queen's Counsel. Snedden had the opportunity to gain a number of voters, a, no, a number of votes, not enough to win the leadership, but to provide an alternative to the future. But he would do enormous damage to his leadership aspirations by writing this letter to his fellow Liberal MPs, and I quote, Those who have urged me to submit myself to the choice of my party colleagues have said, Australia's national leadership needs at this time the vital energy of a man on the wavelength of his own era. Yet this leader must be a man of experience, background, education and imagination. Some of my colleagues have been kind enough to suggest I am such a man. End of quote. 
His claim that he was on the wavelength of a younger generation would expose him to ridicule inside and outside his party. His time would come later, but it would not be the first time that Snedham's words would come back and damage his credibility. Leslie Barry, on the other hand, was never realistically going to win the ballot, but both had their reasons for nominating for the leadership. Snedham was only 41, and the, young, and the young rising star of the party, he had served notice of his ambition. Leslie Barry, on the other hand, his real ambition was to become Federal Treasurer. Barry had a distinguished career in banking and finance working for the Department of Treasury from 1948, and then, and then as Australia's representative to the International Monetary Fund from 1951. Barry, in 1956, would, like others before him, abandon a successful career and instead win the seat of Wentworth for the Liberal Party. He would become Minister for Air in 1961, where he would serve for seven months before resigning after he made comments on Britain's entry to the common market, stating publicly that the effects on Australia would be small. This ran counter to opinions already expressed by Menzies on McEwen on what had been a sensitive subject. Barry had to go, but he would find himself back in the ministry as Minister for, Minister for Housing in 1964, and then another promotion as Minister for Labor and National Service just two years later. The running with Menzies and Haslack in 1962 had not done significant harm to Barry. He was an outsider, a, self cho a safe choice, and, a, and an alternative to the other contenders. But neither Snedden nor Barry would have the numbers to win this leadership ballot. It would come down to Paul Haslack and John Gorton. Paul Haslack, as Foreign Affairs Minister, was a more experienced candidate. Haslack was born in Fremantle, Western Australia, on 1 April 1905. Before entering politics in 1949, Haslack had been a journalist and was then working for what was known as the Department of External, or now known as Foreign Affairs. Haslack would progress from being Minister for Territories Minister for Defence, and finally, ironically, Minister for External Affairs in 1964, which was the department that he once worked very hard for. Haslack was an introvert, yet also a brilliant writer. Gorton, on the John Gorton, on the other hand, had a very different background at Haslack's. Gorton was born in Melbourne, Victoria, on 9 September 1911. He would attend Geelong Grammar, one of Australia's most prestigious schools, and then study at Oxford Yale University, where he graduated in 1936. Young Gorton had high hopes of being a diplomat, but instead would inherit his father's 350-acre orchard in country Victoria. He would serve in the Air Force during World War II, when his plane was shot down near Singapore by Japanese forces, who had managed to overrun what was at the time a British colony. Gorton's face was severely damaged, but Gorton would be unlucky again when his ship that he was evacuating from Singapore was sunk by a Japanese torpedo. Despite his injuries, Gorton was able to find a makeshift raft and make his way to land. His bravery in overcoming such adversity would influence Gorton heavily in his later political career when he would overcome the odds against him and could take quick decisions. In 1949, after finishing his service in World War II, John Gorton would be elected as a senator for the Liberal Party. He was a part of the 49ers, those of the Liberal Party who had won government after sweeping away the ALP in the polls.
Gorton's rise in the government was a slow one, partially because of his reputation as a partially because of his reputation as a maverick. But by December 1967, John Gorton had a respectable position in the government, being leader of the Senate and the Minister for Education. In normal circumstances, Haslack would have been elected. But Haslack would have two fundamental disadvantages in this leadership ballot. Firstly, he'd failed to sell himself, sell himself to his colleagues and campaign on his own behalf. Haslack appeared to take his support within the, within the Liberal Party for granted. He did not campaign on his own behalf and instead simply stated that he would be standing for the leadership. The second disadvantage that Haslack would face was his hostility towards Billy McMahon. Haslack's dislike of McMahon was intense and very personal. In Haslack's own words, McMahon was disloyal, devious, dishonest, trustworthy, petty, cowardly, a contemptible creature. Wow. If elected leader, Haslack had planned to remove McMahon from his role as treasurer and replace him with Leslie Barry. Gordon, on the other hand, undertook to keep McMahon in treasury and support him as deputy leader. This was part of a deal that McMahon had made with Gorton, and would cost Haslack important votes from McMahon's supporters. Gorton would be described quite accurately by Bill Snedden as being elected to the leadership as initially as a Conservative. Certainly none of his early parliamentary speeches indicated anything different. For example, in the Senate on Wednesday 10 November 1954, he would speak on the Southeast Asia Collective Defence Treaty Bill. The bill proposed that Australia become a member of this new alliance, made up of eight countries in Southeast Asia, as well as the USA. It was a military alliance that was designed to combat communist countries in Southeast Asia. But yet Gorton had also demonstrated a boldness, as he did during the VIP affair when he released government records on VIP flights, records which the government led by Holt had denied existed. This was something we talked about on the previous episode. Gordon's war record, his broadness, his boldness, ineffability, but also his conservative credentials gave him a broad support base from a, from a diverse group of individuals, including, no, including those who resented McEwen for his interference, supporters of McMahon, the Mavericks, and most importantly, the senators who wanted one of them to, one of their own to be the new prime minister. Added to this, another great one of um, John Gordon's great strengths, and one, another of the reasons why he won this leadership ballot was because of his campaign team, which included Malcolm Fraser, Dudley Irwin, Malcolm Scott, and Ainsley Gotto. Paul Haslack, on the other hand, did not have an organised campaign. The big day would arrive on January 9, 1968. It was a typical hot summer's day in the nation's capital, where the temperature reached 31 degrees. Billy McMahon, the deputy leader who had been shunned by the country party and members of his own party, would chair the meeting. It would, he would announce to the meeting that he would not be standing for the leadership. The deal had already been made to have McMahon and his supporters vote for Gorton. In exchange, Gorton, upon becoming leader, would ensure that McMahon's position as treasurer would not be threatened. This would prove to be the difference that would allow Gorton to be elected as a new Liberal Party and the country's 19th Prime Minister. That evening, in his Canberra home in Narrabunda, 
Gordon would celebrate with his family and friends. It would be a triumph for Gorton, who had been bold and courageous enough to seek the highest office, despite him being a relatively junior minister and a senator. All Gorton needed now was a seat in the House of Representatives where the Prime Minister would sit. The problem would be solved, because Harold Holt's old seat was made available after his disappearance. Gorton... Gorton's votes, and as I mentioned before about the senators, there were a number of senators who wanted him to be one of their become prime minister. But also, we also should mention these other supporters, which were the backbenchers from the House of Representatives, who did not want to lose their seats. John Gorton was someone who was unconventional, rugged, and provided a stronger opponent to the resurgent Gough Whitlam. Eventually, Dudley Irwin, Malcolm Scott, Malcolm Fraser, and also, I might add, Adain Zagotto were, were rewarded with, with promotions shortly after John Gordon was sworn in as Prime Minister. There's been some discussion and conjecture about how many how, how much Gordon actually won by in this actually won this electorate uh, won how how many votes he won by, I should say, um, in this leadership ballot. Some reports would indicate with them that Gordon the Gordon would win by fifty one votes to thirty. But others such as Ellen Reid would give a far narrower margin, with as little as five votes between them. The question must be asked as to how prepared was Gordon to make such an audacious bid as the new leader of the Liberal Party Prime Minister. Well, there had been rumblings in late nineteen sixty seven after the party's poor results. In the Senate election and also by-elections in the previous 12 months. Just one week before Holt's disappearance, Dudley Irwin, one of John Gorton's key confidants, sent a letter, letter to Harold Holt with Gorton's input. The letter would alert Harold Holt to the disquiet within the Liberal Party. I'd like to quote this letter. My dear Harold, during the last six months of the Parliament and to this present time, various members at all levels within the party have expressed to me feelings of disquiet. This same feeling seems to be permeating the electorate and is being followed up in the press. Do you personally feel that there could be some reason for this attitude? Do you think that it is of sufficient importance for me to probe more deeply into these problems if you feel that in fact there are problems and to make a further report to you? I'm writing to you only in view of what I think is the seriousness of the situation at the moment, and leave it to your evaluation and judgment as to whether you would like a summary of the situation. Yours sincerely, Dudley Irwin, dated the 12th of December 1967, to the Right Honourable Harold Holt. John Gorton's individualism, unconventional style, and ability to make quick decisions had already marked him out as a future leader even before Holt's passing. As a new Prime Minister, Gorton would inherit a, inherit a growing economy with low unemployment, low inflation and a Latin opposition Labour Party that was always susceptible to self-immolation. Now for our books of the week. Okay, the first one is, um, is uh, the, of course, one of, the, one of my favourite books is The Power Struggle, uh, written by Alan Reid, who I've talked about before. 
who is also, as I've said before, is known as as the uh, as the Red Fox. Um, it was actually released in 1969. Released in 1969, um, 18 months after the events of this episode. Look, it's the most detailed account of the events leading up to Harold Holt's disappearance and the events that followed. I really love Reed's expressive use of words to describe events. Yes, you have to be aware that, yes, Reed does have, did work for Frank Packer's media group, who supported McMahon. And yes, of course, this would have had an influence on Reed's writings. But the book is very well researched. He was somebody who was there at the time. He really, uh, he really had a very good inside view of politics. And I just love his writing. Um, he, uh, a brilliant writer. And I thoroughly recommend this book. It's quite exciting. And um, it's one of my favourites. The next one is a book I just recently found, and that was called Ainsley Gotto, and written by Ian Hancock and released in 1920. Gosh, I was so happy when I found this book. Really made my day. Um, Ainsley Gotto was a secretary, but she was much more than that. She was a senior advisor for Dudley Irwin and then Prime Minister John Gorton. Her role in political nous has never been properly acknowledged. This book tells Gotto's story and goes a long way to actually redressing this. Our next episode will give you a history of the turbulent Australian Labor Party and how it got and how it had got to its position in Australia of 1968. Take care, and I'll see you next time. Goodbye, everybody.